Hi everyone and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Today I wanted to talk about a topic that I think I've discussed a little bit in other podcasts but not as like a dedicated podcast and that topic is debunking common myths and misconceptions or stereotypes about positive reinforcement slash rewards based training with horses. Um, There's a lot of really weird misconceptions that the general public has about positive reinforcement with horses. So I thought this would be a really good topic to do because it's just an issue that I see come up so frequently in so many aspects of the horse world to the point where it kind of amazes and surprises me in some ways because there's so much readily available information to correct people with some of these misconceptions that they just clearly don't use. So I wanted to talk about what these misconceptions are and why I think they exist and just kind of my insights on um, kind of, I guess, dealing with people who project these misconceptions onto you because for anyone who has started to use rewards-based methods, I would say unless you board at a facility that is entirely full of clicker trainers or do not share anything online, you are probably going to get people criticizing the way you handle your horse, even when you are just training your own horse and are not harming anyone or anything and there's no reason for them to be triggered by what you're doing. They will be triggered regardless, and they will make some weird snide comment about how you're using food rewards with your horse because of the pervasiveness of these misconceptions and incorrect beliefs. Before we get into that discussion, though, I, of course, have to plug my own advertisements because I don't have any sponsors on this podcast. So for those of you who haven't seen yet, I recently published my own book. It's called The Other Side of Horsemanship, and it is a discussion of my journey navigating trauma in the horse industry and outside of it, and ultimately what led to me making some big shifts in my handling, management, and training of horses, and kind of the journey of grappling with those conflicting emotions and feelings, and how I handled that and kind of my mindset throughout different periods of my life and the horses who helped me fix it um, and like address my mindset, I should say. And then the second half of the book discussed like learning theory and training concepts and how the application of different training methods work. So the first half is more of like a memoir talking about my journey as an equestrian and struggles I faced. And then the second half is more of like a training discussion. So I think it's very timely. And I think it'll put into good perspective why I'm so outspoken on some of the issues that I am um, and why I kind of feel like I have a responsibility to use my platform to speak out on these things because um, I haven't been innocent in like not harming horses, you know, like for a lot of years I was trained to handle them in really harsh and unkind ways. Um, And the only way I can make up for what I did back then due to my own ignorance is by trying to change what I do now and also trying to inspire other people to make similar changes. So that's what I think is really important with like how I manage my platforms and like with the way I go about things because 
I just really want to see change so that there's not so many people making the same mistakes I did for as long as I did because like I have a lot of grief towards the way that I used to handle horses and the beliefs that I used to hold and how it negatively impacted the horses I was around. And at the time I was doing a lot of these things, it wasn't that I didn't value horses' well-being or I didn't care about them. Like, I loved the horses I worked with immensely, which honestly, to me, makes it all the more sad because it's people doing things that are harmful to the animals they love while they're doing them with the best of intentions. But because there's so much misinformation in the horse world, we often don't know how harmful the things we are are doing because we're not taught to believe that they're harmful. So I thought that writing about my experience might help people to feel more comfortable with self-reflecting on their own experiences and realizing that they're not alone in how they feel. Um, and I really hope it's doing that for people. If you have gotten the book and you've read it at all, I would really appreciate your review so that I can improve on things as an author and also so that I can put them on my website uh, to help people who are on the fence about buying the book decide whether or not they'd like to buy it. I would really appreciate that. Um, anyways, in other in other ad related stuff, uh, you can check out my Patreon for training help and more. That's where I've been posting a lot of my training tutorial videos now. For as little as $5 a month, you can access the tiers where you get access to all the tutorials I've already posted, and there's well over 20 of those already, plus all, any of the new ones that I post. I'm going to be editing a tutorial of how I talk the hand target to my Mustangs, but there's also all sorts of videos on there like starting positive reinforcement, teaching the horse head away, neutral head position, working on horses who have issues picking up their feet using positive reinforcement, halter training during positive reinforcement with sorry with using positive reinforcement, working with needle shy horses and getting them used to getting injections safely uh, and all that sort of stuff. There's there's lots and lots of stuff on there. So for anyone who has wanted tutorials like that from me, that's probably the best place to go. Um, because unfortunately YouTube, especially since my channel got hacked, the amount of time that I put into editing the tutorials when I'm putting them up there for free versus the amount of ad revenue I get back honestly isn't worth it for me to dedicate as much time as I would like to to filming those tutorials. So I'm posting more of them onto Patreon now and just doing quicker sneak peeks on YouTube and TikTok. But anyways, you can check that out at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s s-d-equus you can also check out my book and where it's available for sale on my website milestoneequestrian.ca and there's also links to my shopping store and you can check out my products and all that stuff anyways thanks for listening to my ad let's just jump into the discussion so Common misconceptions about positive reinforcement with horses. I'm going to be fully transparent and admit that, like, you, you can even go look for yourself if you want to go digging through my old content. I guarantee you that at least some of these I openly said on my social media or I got in arguments with other clicker trainers about a few years ago. I guarantee you you can find me doing stuff like that. So what I want to say is that there's not any shame in being wrong, but if you choose to be ignorant in the face of new information being offered to you and resist learning, then there is a little bit of shame in that because it's a, it's shame, it's a shame to yourself and your personal growth as a human and your overall capabilities and how amazing and 
great your horsemanship can continue to become. And it's also a shame to the horses that have to deal with your lack of desire to be open to information that is difficult for you to hear, even when it is well-researched and has validity. It's not to say that you have to completely uproot your lives and like change how you do everything with horses the second you read something different, but as equestrians and horse people, we should be on a continued journey of learning, and when new information arises that calls to question things that we've normalized, that's where we need to be open to the evidence because tradition is where it's the hardest to make changes, even when there's evidence that the tradition is dangerous and harmful. And this is not just applicable to the horse things. We see it all across human history where there has been harmful, straight up like sick and cruel traditions that are upheld simply because they have been done a long time. And that is a very dangerous mindset to hold and it'll cause you to stagnate in your training journey because even if you choose to mostly train the way you've always known, understanding how a horse brain works and how certain methods are applied for horses to learn, it will never be a bad thing. Even if you choose to not use the information you get, learning the information and being aware of it will never be a bad thing because if a situation arrives, arises where it's applicable and relevant, then you can use that information at a later date, even if you just tuck it in your back pocket for months or years to come. So it'll never be a bad thing to be more well-rounded on studies about horses and more modern information where we've been to really, like, been able to really compile information about horses, especially with the internet today and everything. Like, it is much easier to access information, share information, and also do, like, surveys and studies and have access to, like, tons of different groups of horse people all over the world. It hasn't been easier than it, than it is now. So... It'll never be a bad thing to just learn that information, even if you choose not to believe in it um, or not to consider it right now. It'll never be a bad thing. So people who are very resistant to even opening articles that call the question things that they believe in, huge, huge red flag. I've said this before on my posts and I'll say it again. If there is something that I am perpetuating in my training that you have found a study on that calls it into question, I would like to read the study because even if I choose to take it with a grain of salt and decide the sample size isn't big enough or it's not credible enough for whatever reason, knowing that it exists will help me kind of keep that door open for when more information could potentially add to it and prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So if anyone ever has evidence to contrast the stuff that I put out there, like scholarly articles and stuff that has like measures in place to eliminate bias, I want to read it. And I've told so many of the people, we'll, we'll get into the exact misconceptions shortly, but I've told so many people who spread these misconceptions about positive reinforcement the same thing. If you have scholarly, credible, unbiased information that proves what you are telling me here, please share it because I would like to learn. I would like to know what factors contribute to this study. And I just want to add to the wealth of knowledge that I have already gained in a fairly short amount of time, thanks to the internet and access to like online courses and studies. But they almost never do. They only ever bring up anecdotal information. And anecdotes can be they can be a good thing. Like, 
for those of you who don't know what an anecdote is, it is basically just your personal experience, like what you have noticed in your life, what your family has taught you, their values, and what your life experience has shown you. So the problem with anecdotes is that they can be incredibly biased because your belief system can be entirely structured by what was taught to you from a very, very young age. And it can lead you to not even consider other avenues of thought that would paint a larger picture because you've not even been taught that those thoughts exist. So that's the problem with anecdotes is if you're solely relying on anecdotes and you're not open to the other opinions and considerations of like other people and like scientific research, then you can get stuck in a very limited space where you're not likely to grow. But the good thing about anecdotes is that a lot of studies and concepts that we've later discovered are true are born out of someone's initial anecdote, like a thought that someone has, a belief that someone has because of watching tons of horses doing something, and then they decide to test it. And then with further testing and measures put in place to help eliminate bias, you can get a more well-rounded picture that shows that it's not just someone's biased thought. And that is why anecdotes are cool. Like, for example, um, I think that horses can definitively develop, like, highly emotional relationships with people. Like, I, the word, the word bond is so overused in the horse world that I don't like to use it, but, like, friendships with people. And we already know that they develop very, very strong emotional attachments to other horses that are very, very meaningful to them when they're allowed to. Some people are of the mind that horses don't really feel any type of way towards humans, and I don't believe that based off of my anecdotal experience. Um, and this is going to lead into some of the misconceptions, because I've had people tell me that my horses only like to hang out with me because I feed them, but what they don't realize is that there's a lot of times that I am just doing stuff in the field around them with absolutely no food, and they have their hay and other areas to be that they could actually be eating, and they choose to hang out with me despite knowing I have nothing to give them. And there would be no reason for them to do that unless my presence itself was reinforcing to them. They have a desire to be around me for a reason outside of food. If it was really only the food, they shouldn't be wanting to be around me as soon as they discover I have nothing to give them, but they do. And it's like literally to the point where like they will try to escape the field to leave with me. Like they're fighting to come out the gate with me to go do things. Or they'll follow me around the field, or they come consistently when I call them, even though the vast majority of the time I call them, I'm not feeding them and re reinforcing that behavior right away. The reinforcement for them to come running all of that way is my presence. And I don't think that that can exist without there being some type of personal attachment that they feel about me. And there has been some studies done on, like, the human-horse relationship, but I think the problem with a lot of those studies is because of traditionally how we have trained horses with pressure and release and not incentivize them with a lot of pleasant stimuli, and horses have been work used as work animals um, and kind of needed to be made to do their jobs because we've needed them to build, this, build the society that we have today. Because of that there hasn't been a lot of incentive for them to have pleasant feelings about people. And I think that some of the studies can reflect this because there's a lot of studies depicting horse stress caused by humans and a lot of negative associations with things that we traditionally use them for. 
but I think that has less to do with their actual perception of humans and more to do with their perception of how humans have historically believed that we need to handle horses. So that that's just like an anecdotal thought that I have too. And even from watching other horses, like when they bring up certain behaviors uh, that I'm trying to discover the underlying motivation for, I'm using my anecdotal experience in addition to what I have studied to get to the bottom of that because there is a lot of nuance in horse body language. The same behavior in different contexts can mean entirely different things, which is why it's key to have such a wealth of information to access when you're trying to figure out problems with your horse, because there can truly be so many issues under the same umbrella of behaviors that look the same from the outside. And that's why it's good to reflect on personal experience and like your knowledge of your horse personally. But if we grow up around stressed and anxious horses who have disordered behaviors, that is the wealth of experience that is being used to normalize and justify behaviors that might actually be harmful. If you're used to always seeing stressed horses to the point where you view it as normal behavior, it's less likely that you're going to look at a sign of stress and go, this is a problem because you see it so often that it's become normal. And I say this from experience because there is a lot of things that I was taught were normal that I never questioned because of that. Anyways, so oops, a misconception about positive reinforcement that I would say is one of the most common ones is the idea that it will make horses bite. This is probably the one I see the most and there is some truth to it. You get what you reinforce. It doesn't matter if you're using pressure and release or positive reinforcement with food rewards. You get what you reinforce. So if you are feeding a horse with treats and you're accidentally reinforcing at the wrong times and not using a marker cue to really nail down a precise moment, then you can be accidentally rewarding the grabby, snatchy, invading your space behaviors that you do not want to see. It isn't a fault of the method itself, it's a fault of the application. It's, com it's comparable to people who use pressure and release but use way too much high pressure and cause horses to panic and get into bad situations. Those type of people, if you use them to talk about the efficacy of pressure and release, you could use it to say that it's entirely ineffective and that it's impossible to do without high levels of stress. And that wouldn't be fair to the people who have used pressure and release with good timing, low pressure, not pushing the horse out of their comfort zone, and reevaluating how they train things when the horse seems to get confused or frustrated. Those people can train with a much lower degree of stress than the people who are loud and use way too much pressure and tend to rush things. But if you took the people who represent the worst application of negative reinforcement or pressure and release and used them to talk about the entirety of that training method, People wouldn't think that's fair because more people in the horse world use pressure and release, so there's more of them to defend it. But they would be absolutely pissed off if you tried to, like, compare them to someone like Clinton Anderson. Like, if you compared a classical dressage coach who believes in using low-pressure methods but still uses pressure and release to someone as high-pressure as Clinton Anderson and said that they were causing their horses just as much stress as him, they would be offended, and rightfully so, because it's not the correct application of that method. The same applies to pressure and release, or sorry, not pressure and release, positive reinforcement. 
People who have horses who are getting food aggressive, biting, and becoming dangerous around food are reinforcing those behaviors even if it's by accident. They're not applying the method correctly because they are causing ill behaviors that have solvable like things that you can do to fix them. So for example, horses who get really pushy and food aggressive around food, before teaching them anything else with positive reinforcement, you should be teaching them how to first be calm and safe to handle around food if you're going to use it as a method. The first things you teach should be about teaching them how to be not in your space and how to get a food reward and what they need to do. So for example, the first behavior a lot of people teach is the neutral head position, which is where the horse is forward facing and they learn to face forward and away from you, not turning towards you to get a treat. And this nips nippy behaviors and mugging behaviors in the bud right away because they learn they only get the reward that they seek when they're facing forward and away and not in your space. And with that said, like with pressure and release, sometimes horses can be frustrated, anxious, or excitable enough that they do things that they know through conditioned history are not what they're being asked to do. So for example, a horse who's normally really steady and consistent deciding to throw a buck on a crisp fall day uh, when they're pent up energy and excited. That horse might have a learned history of almost never doing that, but factors on that particular day changed it and you need to ride the horse you have on that day. Similarly, if you have a horse who typically has very good manners around food, but you're using an extremely high value of reward, they might slip up more and turn towards you more even if they had a very consistent head away. And then that's in those moments where you need to adjust your training to condition the behaviors you want to see even in moments where they're more stressful, more excitable, and less predictable for the horse. Um, but if you're reinforcing the same behavior all the time and they're not being reinforced for biting or being muggy, there is no incentive for them to do those behaviors. This applies to any training method that you use. It's not just with positive reinforcement. If you are not making it reinforcing for them to engage in a behavior and there's nothing that's externally reinforcing that behavior for them, there is no reason for them to continue doing it. It even applies to things like eating. If horses were not made to, if they were not in discomfort when they are hungry, they wouldn't feel the same need to eat to relieve that. And same with thirst. The underlying motivation for those behaviors is the initial discomfort, and they relieve it by seeking food or water. So it's pressure and release. They're being reinforced by the release of an aversive pressure. It's negative reinforcement to get them to eat or drink. And that's what makes them do it. If a horse suddenly ceased to be hungry and didn't have the innate need to forage, they wouldn't be eating as often. Or if they suddenly never felt thirsty they probably wouldn't drink as often because it's not reinforcing to them. So this is the key in training is when your horse starts to do things that you don't want them to do, consider what you could be doing to reinforce them accidentally or if there's any external factors that are reinforcing them for that. Like for example, a horse who is in pain might choose to buck or rear more even when they get punished for those behaviors if it provides them with relief of pain or if it provides them with relief of stress that they're having from pain or discomfort or frustration. They'll do those behaviors even if they haven't had a learned history from the human that makes it a safe behavior to do. So with nippy behaviors in horses, 
Almost always it is due to poor timing on the part of the person using the food rewards and they are not teaching the correct behaviors because the problem is like, and again, I'm saying this from experience, so don't view this as an attack on people who use negative reinforcement. When you're used to using negative reinforcement and you're training in very traditional programs, there's a lot of pressure to move through things quickly and like get to the fun stuff. Like when you get a young horse, a lot of people are tempted to rush through that flat work foundation and the dressage foundation and get right to jumping as soon as possible. In doing so, they teach a lot of bad behaviors like rushing or the horse will be not fit or muscular enough to properly carry itself or jump correctly. And it comes at the sacrifice of that. But people want to get to the fun part. And the same happens when a lot of these people go into positive reinforcement. They see all the fun liberty stuff that people who have taken the time to build the neutral head position and the safe behaviors first are doing, and they want to get right to running with their horse at liberty with the target stick and having it be fun and having the horse enjoy it. So in their desire to do that, they're not shaping the necessary behaviors to create success in asking for those behaviors. They're rushing to the fun part, which results in them missing out on a lot of key factors that are crucial to getting to the fun part. And until you generally make those mistakes, or unless you have a really good mentor that prevents you from making those mistakes, you usually have to make those mistakes for some amount of time before you realize that slow and steady wins the race and that you actually get further ahead when you don't rush it. Same applies to positive reinforcement. Like, there are a lot of parallels that people do not realize that are applicable to all different types of training. And that's what behavioral science and learning theory is. It's the science of learning and how animals learn and retain information and how they are reinforced. And it even applies to us. Humans are also reinforced by negative reinforcement and pressure and release. It happens at work. If you make a mistake or you're going too slow and your employer brings you into the office and they're like, that's bad, that's a negative reinforcer that is so highly uncomfortable that people will work harder or the fear of losing your job and not being able to afford to feed yourself. That is what ultimately makes all of us go to work every day for the most part because most people don't want to work a 40-hour week. If they had a choice, they wouldn't want to work that often in most cases. They do it because of the negative reinforcer of not being able to afford their life. Um, we also eat due to the negative reinforcement of feeling hungry and the positive reinforcement of enjoying the food that we like to eat, like a special treat. That'll be what prompts you to eat. Sometimes even when you're not hungry, if there's something you really like, you'll eat it anyways. Even without that nagging hunger that is the relief that you get from eating, um, negative reinforcement. So it applies to all different types of animals and, and humans too, and it's not just horses. Like it's a learning science that across the board is applicable. So it comes back to you get what you reinforce. So with nippiness, if you're accidentally reinforcing at the wrong time, which is very, very easy to do without a marker cue, especially when you're first using treats with horses. If you don't condition a marker cue or a bridge signal, which is like the click sound, like if you're using a clicker or a with your tongue, or even just yes or good, if you don't have that bridge signal, the horses really only feel like they're getting reinforced either when you they see you stick your hand into your treat pouch and know that that means you're getting a handful of treats to give them or when the treats physically make it to their mouth. So that gives a pretty big gap of time that they could then engage in an unwanted behavior 
before you actually reinforce what you're looking for. It makes a pretty big gap of time between your wanted behavior and when you're actually reinforcing it. And this is what leads to problems. So timing, timing, timing. You get what you reinforce. Please don't rush things. Don't frustrate horses by missing shaping steps and confusing them because frustration will also bring out these behaviors. So if you're seeing these behaviors in training, labeling it as a fault of positive reinforcement is inherently flawed because it generally comes back to the trainer and how they are going about things. And the same applies to many other training methods. Uh, with that said, like a lot of people look at high pressure training methods and think that they're successful if they produce a really quiet, uh, obedient horse. But if the obedience comes at the expense of the horse's well-being and they're in, in learned helplessness and shut down, then from the standpoint of animal welfare and what is fair and kindest to the horse, those methods are not successful. For people, they're highly reinforcing if they just want an, an obedient robotic creature at any cost. So it's important to consider what's actually getting you results, but also keep in mind that the way you go about things in riding and training can be causing a lot of the problems. The desire to solely blame a training method and not take any accountability for yourself shows a lack of self-awareness and personal growth. It's very important to consider how you could be contributing to these things or how external environmental factors or the horse's soundness or mental well-being factors contribute to those things and you're not considering them. Because as the trainer, it's your job to consider all those factors. Woo! Okay, I'm going to just take a sip of water. One sec. So that comes back to... The next reason why horses might get nippy. Uh, another factor is that a lot of horses are not fed free choice access to forage diets, so it means that their stomachs are empty for lengthy periods of time. It only takes four hours of being on an empty stomach before horses can start to get ulcerations in their stomach because their stomachs are so acidic because they're meant to be intaking large amounts of forage throughout the day and digesting it pretty quickly. So their stomach is very acidic because of this, because it's meant to have food in it basically constantly. So when we're not doing that and we're not providing them with that natural lifestyle that they need with the free choice access to forage, it can even be in like a slow feed hay net. It doesn't need to be a lush grass, grass pasture. Um, if they're hungry, that can cause a lot of negative follow-up behaviors, even if the horse actually knows the neutral head away position and what they need. Like horses who are really well-schooled in positive reinforcement and know that neutral head behavior by heart, if you take their food away for two plus hours or like four hours and they're hungry and you bring them out, even those horses you'll probably see to start making mistakes because they are so hungry that they're desperate to get something in their stomach and it makes them very overstimulated and frantic about the food. So management does play a role too. If a horse is only getting fed like two to three hay feedings a day and they gobble up their hay so quickly that they're going hours between each feeding without any food, this can cause unwanted behaviors because they're hungry and they're looking to fulfill a discomfort that they are feeling. And they can tell that you can provide them with that due to the learned history of what food means and what the rewards-based training means for them but they're too overstimulated and too up to focus in the way that you're looking for. So for people who don't have control over their horse's feed schedule or if you're leasing or whatever, it can be as simple as giving them a flake of hay, 
before you start working with them with food or giving them a bucket of soaked alfalfa cubes just free to eat before you start working with them. Fill their stomach a little bit and let them get some like buffering of that stomach acid before you bring food into the equation when it's already something that might overstimulate them a little. Set them up for success. So those are really good ways to avoid nippy behavior. All that aside, from like a research perspective, they've done studies on like safety with horses and like where humans are most at risk of having injuries from horses. And categorically, what we find is that stress in horses is a huge contributor to human injury. Like in most of these studies, the horses who are the most stressed are the most dangerous to be around. And from studies that we've done on positive reinforcement with horses, we have seen tangible evidence, like lengthy different studies of like novels full of evidence showing that horses who have a rewards-based system are typically less stressed. And this also involves like meeting their other needs too, like horses who are stalled a lot and isolated from other horses are typically more dangerous to handle because they're more stressed versus horses living full-time out in herd turnout with free choice access to food are typically less stressed because they're having more of their needs met. So there's different factors that are not just applicable to the training. But positive reinforcement has been shown to limit stress in horses and make traditionally highly stressful activities such as trailer loading much lower stress and safer for horse and human alike. So that part's not really up for debate. They haven't been found to be more dangerous or more aggressive or pushy for food with positive reinforcement. Like there's no evidence that supports that. And speaking from experience, like as someone who grew up working at boarding facilities where horses were living in fairly high stress environments and where they were trained basically just with negative reinforcement and punishment, those horses by far were the most food aggressive ones that I've ever worked with. And I know that is an anecdote, but my anecdote is also supported in study that limits bias. But th those horses were the ones that were the most likely to lunge at me when I went in their stall to feed. I remember vividly still that there is this big warm blood gelding named Dante at one of the barns that I worked at. And I went to fill his water buckets at the back corner of his stall and he cornered me with his ears pinned and was threatening to like lunge at me and kick me um, because he was eating his hay in the other corner and he was probably stressed from being stalled so much. And it was terrifying. So I was like 12. <laughs> like I was like, holy shit, this is like a big giant animal and he wants to kill me. And it was scary. I have not worked with a clicker trained horse that has ever shown me that level of aggression at any point. Never. The horses who typically try to bite me the most are horses who do not get turned out enough and are on high grain diets and are not turned out with other horses because not because they're being aggressive or mean, but because they're so overstimulated and pent up that they're like grabbing at my skin. They're trying to bite me when they're frustrated and they're just expressing outward frustration with their behavior in ways that humans do not like and that we view as dangerous. And those ones are like at the racetrack, for example, like walking past a horse's stall could get you bitten. It doesn't matter if you're using food or not. They're frustrated with their lives and they're lunging at like people and and horses who walk by their stalls. Or when you're girthing up a horse who has a history of pain or they're ulcery or negative experiences with riding, they'll try to bite you or they'll try to kick you. 
I've never experienced that with a clicker-trained horse. Never. I've taken horses who have shown me that level of aggression off the bat, like, in the beginning of their training, and solved the aggression by using food rewards. I think that in a lot of cases, the most dangerous horses cannot be fixed without positive reinforcement. And I think that's why we have a pretty big discard pile for horses with problematic behaviors in the horse world because we're not actually addressing the underlying causes of them and we're not addressing the elephant in the room that is ultimately contributing to all of these problems. And I think that it's largely contributed to by the decisions of humans and our lack of ability to self-reflect and reconsider traditional practices. So it it's <laughs> it's one of those things where I think that this misconception comes from people's desire to protect themselves and them projecting their own insecurities onto other people because seeing training work in a way that they've been told it doesn't work traditionally triggers them. But the problem is, like, the people in these barns who typically just use pressure and release and are so concerned about these biting behaviors, if they're being honest with themselves, they're already seeing them everywhere despite the absence of positive reinforcement in the barn, if we're being honest. And I really want people to think about this one because it's not meant as an attack. It's meant as just looking at your life and your day-to-day -day handling at the barn and honestly looking at what you're seeing. If you find that you're working at a barn where horses are trying to bite and kick you on a pretty regular basis, that is not normal. It isn't. Not at all. It's an indicator of a very frustrated and stressed horse. And I think that a lot of people who work in barns can attest to how frequently that happens. Because that's one of the crappiest things about being a barn worker is you typically don't get paid very well. You're not getting paid for injury leave if you do get hurt. You have no health care benefits. If you get sick, they're not paying you sick days. Or if you get injured and can't work, even if you get injured at work, they're not paying for your days off. And you're, you're having to work with all of these horses whose problems you don't really contribute to because you have no control over their lives in the grand scheme of things. But you're having to handle them on a daily basis with all of these issues that jeopardize you and your safety, all while making barely above minimum wage in most cases, and not having your safety considered when you become injured at the hands or the hooves of other people's horses. And so, think about it. When you're girthing horses on a weekly basis, how many of them try to bite you? How many of them lift their legs and threaten to kick? How many of them swish their tails? When you're walking by stalls at barns, how many of them pin their ears at you and display any form of aggression whatsoever? How many of them bare their teeth? How many of them lunge? If a horse has their window open, will they bite you? Are there horses in the barn who, if their window's open, they'll try to bite you or other horses? Um, does your horse pin their ears at you and try to bite you when you're feeding it? Do horses that you handle at the barn do this? Do you see other people's do horses doing this in the barn? If we're being honest with ourselves, at most traditional barns, you'll see at least a few of these issues on a fairly regular basis. And generally speaking, the people having these problems do not train with positive reinforcement. So this misconception to me stems from a place of insecurity and projecting personal issues onto other people who are providing a solution that you're uncomfortable with. Because... If we're just honestly looking at it, 
aggressive issues stem from harsh training methods, stressful training methods, unmet management needs. And we see it all over the place. And honestly, the safest horses that I get all the time, again, this is an anecdote, but research supports it. I have never been in danger working with a horse who has been trained with positive reinforcement. Never. And even when I'm working with dangerous horses that I get in for behavior cases, behavior modification cases, where they might have issues like bronching under saddle after all pain has been addressed, but they still have that association, or they're biting people, they're showing aggression in their paddock, in their stall, they're really pushy on the ground, they try to like strike or kick out at you when they're lunging, or all and any type of issue. I've been able to fix the aggression safely and quickly using positive reinforcement, whereas if I just use pressure and release, in a lot of cases it escalates first before it's resolved. And I say this as someone who's used pressure and release extensively for most of my riding career. There's now a lot of issues that I will not work on if I cannot use positive reinforcement because for me, it's a safety thing for myself. It's not about trying to like sell my agenda to horse people. It's about doing what is safest for me and also what is most fair to the horses. But I think that I speak for basically any clicker trainer in the world when I say this, regardless of what animal they are clicker training. If they tried to train that same animal with behavioral issues just using punitive techniques and negative reinforcement, they would be in more danger. Like, consider how a zookeeper would fare if they tried to, like, whip a lion or a tiger or a hyena or a polar bear or smack them on the nose for something they didn't like, or just tried to add pressure, pressure, pressure to make them do something with no incentive to do it. Those animals, first of all, are actually wild animals, so they're more unpredictable in general, but they're also predators, and they know their size, and they know that they can overpower these people. They are way more likely than horses are to respond with aggression, and that is why, like, in, like, reputable zoos and animal sanctuaries, positive reinforcement is the gold standard of training because it is the safest way to handle these very unpredictable, dangerous animals who have more of a tendency to attack by far than horses do, especially when they're frustrated, threatened, anxious, or scared. Horses as a species are very, very passive animals, and the fact that so many horse people are, are acting like it's rocket science to train horses and that they're so, so dangerous that they cannot possibly be fed food, otherwise they'll become bloodthirsty wolf horses, it, it's trying to inflate what we're doing past the point of what it is. Like, horses as a species are very passive creatures, so if you can't train a horse how to safely exist around food, but someone can train a polar bear to do that, the issue is you, not the method. And that is just putting it very bluntly. So, yeah, like, if we're being honest with ourselves, it is very clear where the highest instance of dangerous horses are coming from, and it's out of the pipeline of highly punishing, high-pressure, quickly-moving training programs that also tend to have poor management in addition to this. Those are the horses who are becoming the most dangerous. They are not clicker-trained horses. It's the ones that are coming from high-stressed, 
punishing methods where they feel the need to defend themselves in a way that is less common for horses because horses are flight animals. They would much prefer to flee and not be in a situation than they would to fight. So yeah, I think we just need to honestly look at the horse world and where we are seeing the most dangerous, quirky, quote-unquote, kind of high-stress and finicky horses because the ones that I had to walk on eggshells around were not the clicker-trained horses. Like, it, it, it's, it's a very, very clear difference. And I say this because I want people to see the difference for themselves. Not because I'm judging you, because again, I used to do all the same things. Anyways, the next misconception that I see a lot of people saying is, I want my horse to do this for me, not for the treats. <sighs> this one. First of all, the assumption that with negative reinforcement, horses are doing what you ask because they want to do it for you is so egocentric and serves only to pump your, e your tires, your pump your own ego and inflate your own self-worth. Your horse is not doing what you ask when you're training with pressure and release because they want to do it for you. If you look at scientifically how the breakdown of these reinforcement methods work in comparison to pressure and release or negative reinforcement and positive reinforcement, at its core, how negative reinforcement works is by the relief from pressure. What is the reinforcement is the removal of an aversive stimulus. Aversive means unpleasant. It doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be terrifying. It can be irritating or just uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. And the reason why it has to be unpleasant is because otherwise, if it was something that the horse wanted to be there and that they sought out, the removal of it wouldn't be reinforcing. It would be punishing because you'd be removing something that they enjoy. So... Negative reinforcement at its core is reliant on relief of an aversive stimulus. So what the horse is getting is not actually a reward, it is relief from discomfort. And again, it doesn't have to be an extremely high level of discomfort. I'm not saying you're abusing your horses if you ever use pressure and release, but this is scientifically how negative reinforcement works. And to try to put it in perspective for people who really don't get it, Compare it to, like, at home. You get home after a long day of work and your mom starts nagging you to go start dinner or do something right away. And you don't want to do it, you don't want to do it, but she keeps nagging you and will not leave you alone, so finally you just go and do the thing. That's negative reinforcement because they leave you alone once you do the thing for it. A lot of people use negative reinforcement. It's a common thing that you see in, like, relationships and friendships where people will apply a negative stimulus, like a negative pressure, and then as soon as they get what they want, they release it. And usually over time, it leads to you feeling a little bit resentful of that person if that's all you are ever getting for your reinforcement, is just the relief from them making you feel bad. So this is why negative reinforcement in horses is associated with a higher degree of stress, typically. Because the negative stimulus being applied, first of all, varies from person to person. 
even for the same cue in theory, someone could be applying a different level of pressure and the horse is expected to answer to the same cue. Similarly, the degree to which pressure is escalated can become punishing to the horse and it can be scary and high stress. So what pressure and release really is, is a horse just working to relieve themselves from discomfort. It's kind of the same idea as when they eat to relieve a hunger pang. They do it because the hunger pang is uncomfortable. They're not doing it to, like, for the food, you know? Like, not, not for the, how, how other horses perceive them or how the hay perceives them. They're not doing it for someone else. They're doing it to relieve themselves from discomfort. So when you're training your horse with pressure and release, they're never doing what you ask just for you. They're doing it to relieve themselves from pressure because how pressure and release is used is until they do what you're asking them to do, they don't get released from that pressure. And if you're shaping it slowly enough, it doesn't have to be lots like high levels of pressure or anything of the sort, uh, but it can be depending on the training program. And even if it's low pressure, if the horse is just continuously being asked something again and again and again until they give the wanted response, all they are looking to do is relieve themselves from the annoyance of that pressure. They're not looking to impress you. They're not looking to do it for you, which is why typically the horses who are trained this way will never engage in these behaviors in the absence of that pressure. I would ask anyone who's trained with negative reinforcement this question. If your horse is truly doing it for you, they should just do it on the fly. Like if you have a verbal cue associated with something, even if they're out in their fields doing their own business, they should just do it because you asked with no pressure being applied to them whatsoever. But the problem with that is that verbal cues in themselves can become a pressure because when there's a history of physical pressure associated with that verbal cue, the cue itself becomes aversive, so it becomes a negative reinforcer. But even still, most times horses in these types of training programs will not engage in behaviors if they know that there's no feasible way for you to make it high pressure enough to make them do it. Like, they're less likely to do what you want in turnout. Like, for example, a lot of horses who don't like their training programs become hard to catch, sometimes even in stalls and small paddocks. And if they were truly engaging in certain behaviors for you, they should always be wanting to come in with you and do things with you. And the irony of this misconception is that with how the brain connections work and like the learning understanding of these different types of reinforcers actually sits in the brain and how horses actually comprehend it, positive reinforcement would be closer to getting the horse to do something for you. Because instead of the learned history of avoiding an aversive stimulus they do not like, it's a learned history of being offered something that they seek, that they want to have, that they enjoy, that is pleasant um, and tastes good, something that they really, really want and enjoy. And because of that pleasant association, even in the absence of a food reward, horses can have positive associations with different types of tasks. Because of that rewards history, they've been taught this behavior feels good because of that history of reinforcement. So, 
even when you don't have something to reinforce them with, they're more likely to engage in this behavior simply because they asked, because you asked. Even then, I would say I don't think they're truly doing it for you or your approval because they don't think like us. They don't view stuff in like a status or transactional way in the same way as people do, and they don't really care about impressing us. They're just trying to live their lives and do what feels good in the moment. So they do it because of that rewards history, creating a pleasant association with the behavior itself, not because they want to do something for you necessarily. Um, but with horses who are trained with positive reinforcement, if you ask them to engage in a behavior, even in the absence of a reward, typically they'll do it just right away. They'll just do it. And... I think that this misconception shows a massive lack of misunderstanding and, um, or like a massive lack of understanding towards how reinforcement history works and how positive reinforcement training actually works. Because when you're slowly shaping behaviors like this and creating a reinforcement history associated with them, like a rewards-based system, you're gradually building duration. So in the beginning of these training videos, you see people feeding their horses on a near constant basis because you're building duration and you're creating a positive association with the task being taught. And in order to slowly shape a behavior, you need to be reinforcing the tiny little steps of it. You can't just go and be like, okay, I want my horse to stand tied. So I'm just going to stand here and expect him to stand tied right away all at once. And I'm going to wait five minutes before rewarding him. No, the horse has no duration built for that behavior. It's the same idea with pressure and release. When you're teaching a horse an initial task, you can't just ask them once and have them just maintain that behavior for a lengthy duration. Like, for example, teaching a horse how to go around in an outline and carry themselves correctly. When you're teaching them this, you're giving and taking and adding and releasing pressure on a near constant basis also. And it takes months, if not years, before you've built that duration to the point where you can really sit on the horse for most of the ride and not have to continually be reinforcing them. It's the same thing. So there's a lot of hypocrisy in this statement of, I want my horse to do it for me, but also how people frown upon how frequently horses are being rewarded when they are just as frequently, if not more often, applying aversive pressure. They're doing the exact same thing with how frequently they're applying a reinforcer, but it's just a different type of reinforcer. So the issue with these types of people's perception of positive reinforcement is not how frequently we reinforce, but what we're reinforcing with. And my question for that would be, why does it make people so much more uncomfortable to see horses being reinforced with something they like versus reinforced with something they don't like? Because negative reinforcement is relief of aversive pressure. A lot of people try to say the relief of pressure is the reward, but a reward is something that you gain. The horse in a negative reinforcement training program is gaining nothing other than relief from discomfort. That's not a reward. You're taking away an aversive stimulus. It's like going to a job and someone saying, oh, like, the pride you feel from working an eight-hour day is your pay. 
Would you still want to work that job? No, because you shouldn't have to take pride in doing things for free for people just because they want the favor done. And I know horses aren't people, but they are individuals with their own motives and desires. So why should they want to do something that only benefits us with no real incentive for them to do it? It's a skewed mindset in itself. And honestly, it comes back to the place where I say it's very egocentric to want that much control over an animal that you just expect them to be just as invested in doing things for you simply because you want those things done when you're not willing to make it fun and rewarding for them and when you view rewards as something to frown upon. What incentive do they have to do that? Only the relief of pressure. And pressure isn't enjoyable because if it was, the relief would not be reinforcing. Like, for example, a horse who likes being itched, if you, relief, if you relieved that itching stimulus when they did the right thing, you would end up accidentally punishing that behavior because that type of pressure the horse enjoys. And removing it, it is called negative punishment because you're removing something the horse would like to continue having. And when that's removed, it's kind of like an, oh man, I wanted that. And it's not a reinforcing or rewarding feeling for the horse. So the idea that horses are doing anything for like us, simply just to do it for us, stems from a really like anthropomorphic view that puts us on a pedestal that we do not deserve because we have not earned it. It's giving, it's like giving yourself a participation ribbon, but like giving yourself one from yourself, not even from the thing you participated in, you know, like we, we need to check ourselves. So this misconception is just wrong on so many counts. Um, but I think the biggest problem with it is the fact that people are gaslighting themselves into believing that when they pressure a horse to do something with aversives, the horse is doing it because they want to please the person and they want to do the thing for them. They just want to avoid the pressure being applied. They want to be in a more comfortable state and they have learned through reinforcement history that avoiding the pressure is how to seek that state and how to avoid punishment in some cases. And with positive reinforcement, horses are doing behaviors that they have a reinforcement history getting a pleasant reward for. So they're seeking a good feeling that they predict if they give the right behavior, they'll get that good feeling. Now, from a study standpoint, what they found in comparing negative and positive reinforcement is that positive reinforcement horses are more likely to trial new behaviors. What this means is when they are learning new behaviors, they're more likely to try a bunch of different things in an effort to find what the correct answer is than negative reinforcement horses are. Negative reinforcement horses are often less likely to trial new behaviors due to perceived risk of aversiveness being applied. And this is more applicable for horses who are in punishing programs where there's a risk of being physically punished for doing the wrong thing. Um, but it also applies to negative reinforcement because the aversive pressure is unpleasant in itself. So if there's a risk of having more pressure applied with the wrong answer, 
they often choose to not seek alternatives due to that risk. And this is what they found in studies. Positive reinforcement horses are typically able to pick up tasks sooner and learn more quickly because they are more likely to trial new behaviors, which makes it easier to shape the correct thing. They seek what the correct answer is because there is a reinforcer in it for them that they want. There's a reward. They want a treat. So they're going out of their way to try a bunch of different things to try to find the right answer because they want that reward. So they're typically more involved in training because of this, because there's more stakes in, like stake in it for them. And it makes sense if you think about it. Like I think it, it, it's equivalent to, and I know people, people always accuse me of anthropomorphizing when I make these analogies, but it's literally just trying to help people understand things that they're trying to be decidedly ignorant about. It's, it's like if you compared a job that gave its employees periodic raises and bonuses for being loyal to the company and doing their job versus one that never gave raises and pay, underpaid people. The level of motivation and desire to take on more work and volunteer to do tasks in the company that appreciates its, its employees more is likely to be higher because they are getting more reinforcement out of it and there's more positives associated with doing the right thing. Whereas... In a negative reinforcement program, even if you do the right thing and you have an exceptional performance, there's not often a lot of high-level reinforcers. Like, think about it. A lot of the horses we see doing incredible feats, like running a five-star cross-country course or jumping a meter 60, the best that they get in a lot of cases, like when we're talking immediately following the behaviors they've done, is a pat on the neck. And... Padding, they've actually done some studies on it that horses prefer scratching over padding, which makes sense because that's how they groom each other. But padding can even result in an increase of heart rate, indicating that horses don't like it. But people are so self-absorbed with doing what they want to believe that even with that, I've seen people push back against that research, even though it's such a simple thing to change. Um, and... When you look at those horses too, like what they've learned, what they've done to learn how to perform those behaviors in a lot of cases is seek to avoid pressure. They haven't been rewarded for doing the right thing. So the idea that these horses want to do their jobs and that they do it out of enjoyment, I think is a little bit flawed if you're against providing the very things to help them enjoy it, enjoy it more. It's not even about saying that you have to switch to a completely positive reinforcement program, but being like anti-rewards because you think that it'll make the horse not want to do something for you is just an inherently flawed mindset because it comes with the assumption that they're already doing things for you because they want to instead of doing what we know for, for fact is how negative reinforcement works, which is relief from an aversive. Like that's how it works on the brain and there's different chemical releases involved and different learned pathways in the brain because of this. Like, it's not really up for debate. Um, so I think that it's really weird that we have this culture of horse people that really want their horses to like their jobs. They want to brag about how much their horses like their jobs and how their horses do things just for them, but then they never want to reward them. And oftentimes they don't actually take no for an answer. So they say their horse likes their job, and oftentimes a lot of them will even say, oh, if they didn't want to do it, they wouldn't. But then when the horse, like, stops at a fence or bucks or bolts, they get punished for it in one way or another and typically worked harder to be taught a lesson. And 
what I see with a lot of these misconceptions is just an entire culture of people gaslighting themselves into believing the wrong things because they're saying that they want their horse to enjoy a job and do it because they want to. And then they say that if the horse didn't want to, they wouldn't do it. But then their very training and how they talk about it encourages working horses harder when they do the wrong thing, getting after them when they do the wrong thing, not letting them get away with it. And all of these ideas target unwanted behavior that the horse is exemplifying, which should in theory be viewed as them not wanting to do the thing and using it as a reason to punish them for it. And if you're truly going to say that an animal likes a job and is doing it for you because they want to, then you can't view unwanted behavior as something punishable or something bad or them being naughty because then you are not truly taking no for an answer. You can't say they would say no if they didn't want to do it if when that no comes up, you're just going to push them through it. And this is where I would say positive reinforcement has the upper hand because if you're using mostly positive reinforcement and you're putting a cap on how much pressure you're going to use in your program, it's way harder to make horses do things that they do not want to do. If you're not willing to punish them for hard no's and just keep adding the pressure and upping the level of pressure to make them do it, odds are you're not going to get them over that fence without bringing the fence down first and like getting them used to trot poles and building their confidence like that. Like you can't make them do something that they do not want to do without exercising a certain level of pressure or punishment. So I think positive reinforcement kind of pulls the key out of the ignition for that type of mindset because the nature of it doesn't allow you to go about things in that way. And it's more about honoring those no's and trying to turn those no's into a yes next time through empowering and motivating the animal with something that they want to seek. And Another big misconception that people have about positive reinforcement is that if you don't have treats all the time, the horse will not engage in the behaviors and that they'll just decide not to do it and that they'll be stubborn and harder to handle. This one, again, has no real evidence to back it whatsoever because speaking from experience and also what's been depicted in studies is even in the absence of an immediate reward, especially once you've built duration for behaviors over time, positive reinforcement horses are more likely to do what you ask because, again, they, they have a history of being rewarded for doing nice things. They don't expect punishment from their handlers to anywhere near the same degree or at all. And they're used to feeling pretty calm and low stress during training. So they're typically less fearful and they're more likely to defer to their handler in times of high stress and self-soothe easier. Whereas a horse who's punished a lot and trained in high pressure programs doesn't have that history of a positive reward for doing the right thing. They're often pushed into situations where they feel stressed and uncomfortable. And then when they outwardly exhibit that stress, it has the risk of being punished because it's the wrong behavior. So that's a scary state of mindset to be in if you don't understand why you're being punished and if the cues that are being given to you are unclear to you. It means that it's like kind of like walking through a minefield. You don't know when your next step is going to cause something to blow up. So these horses kind of are living on eggshells and walking around on eggshells and waiting for the other shoe to drop. 
so it's harder for them to relax and self-soothe, and they feel inherently less safe around their handlers. Um, and again, this isn't speaking for anyone who uses negative reinforcement. It's talking about high-pressure programs and just, like, categorically the mindsets that they contribute to, especially when people are anti any type of reward for their horse. The other thing that, like, would support this, too, is that, like, how many horses have you seen run away from their riders when their riders fall off at shows and be hard to catch after? It's a pretty common thing, even at the upper levels, in partnerships where the rider has been riding the horse for years. And yes, I get that horses are high-stress environments and that any horse can have that happen, but horses who feel safe around their handlers are more likely to seek out that specific person even when they're in an, or especially when they're in an environment that is high stress and unpredictable and that they don't feel safe in. They'll go to whoever they feel most safe by. And you should be that person as their rider and handler. So the idea that you always need treats to have a horse engage in the wanted behavior is first of all false. Because once you build duration, you're rewarding much more intermittently and once it becomes intermittent like that, you're actually reinforcing the behavior less than what you would with pressure and release. Because pressure and release, all of the pressure-based cues, the reinforcement for following those cues is the relief of pressure. So you're constantly reinforcing. So the idea that positive reinforcement people are doing it more comes from a lack of understanding of how the training that they're engaging in is actually applied. Because they're reinforcing all the time. So why is it suddenly bad to reinforce frequently when it's a different method of reinforcement? Especially when it's a method that leads to you needing to reinforce less over time by a substantial amount. Whereas I don't think the same applies to pressure and release simply because the pressure-based cues are reliant on the relief of pressure for the reinforcement because there's no other reinforcement for following those cues. So they're reinforcing all the time. So my question to people who are like, oh, like, what are you going to do when you have no treats is what do you do when you don't have pressure or restraints? If you had to take all of your tack off right now and try to ride your horse in just a neck rope, how's that going to go? If you had to turn your horse loose in a competition arena with nothing on them and try to catch them while you have the saddle in your hands, how's that going to go? Are they going to come to you? Or are they going to run away? If you need to trailer load them without a halter on, how's that going to go? If you need to trailer load them without a chain or a whip behind them, how's that going to go? Are you going to get them in? If you tried to ride your horse without the harsh bit that you've moved them up into, how's that going to go? What if you don't have all of those things? Treats as a piece of equipment are a lot less to carry around and a lot more safe to carry around than needing to ride your horse in a harsh piece of equipment that runs the risk of injuring them at worst and causing them pain at best because of the nature of that equipment. And again, I'm not speaking for any and all bits. I'm speaking for bits that are meant for the intent of controlling a horse that is too difficult to control in softer equipment. So I think we need to ask ourselves, why is it always the positive reinforcement people who are being criticized more and chastised for their method 
and have these comments that imply that we're more reliant on food than anyone else's on pressure and gadgets when we have an entire industry that is mar like making billions off of the idea that a bit will fix your problems or when you have an entire industry that just operates off of pressure and release which you are doing all the time even like I said even clucking can become a negative reinforcer if it's been linked to that in the same way a bridge signal for positive reinforcement can become a positive reinforcer because it predicts a history of being rewarded with something the horse wants to seek out if you link a certain cue to an aversive pressure that cue in itself will become aversive if you link a cue to a reward that cue in itself will become a reward it's like Classical conditioning, Pavlov, you know, linking that dog, getting fed to the bell, the dog would salivate. If you changed it to not being food that the dog was getting and you had it be, I don't know, a vacuum cleaner or something the dog was afraid of, they would start running from the bell. So the horse world is in need of a massive overhaul of our, like our understanding of how things work and also a big ego check because... All of the positive reinforcement misconceptions that I hear are actually more applicable to negative reinforcement because they are typically, those types of horses are much more reliant on force and pressure to get them to do behaviors, which means they're not doing them for you. They're not doing them because they want to, and you're entirely reliant on the application of pressure in order to get those behaviors to occur. And these misconceptions really serve the purpose of just making people feel better about themselves and their own decided ignorance as they refuse to even do themselves the service of learning about something before they condemn it. Because all of these statements that I've discussed in this podcast show a massive lack of understanding for learning theory and how the methods that they're criticizing are actually applied. And if you're going to criticize positive reinforcement because you don't like it, you should at least understand how it works. And the idea that it's reliant on treats to get a behavior to occur all the time is false. But the belief that pressure and release is reliant on pressure and release to get a behavior to occur all the time are true. So... I'm going to get in so much trouble from people who don't like me from this podcast because, like, I've been kind of blunt here. Um, but, yeah, like, learn, do, do yourself the grace of learning about the things you don't like before criticizing them. Especially if it's, like, a harmless method that is a lot more hard to abuse than negative reinforcement is. Like, positive reinforcement... You can teach a horse how to be food aggressive if you use it incorrectly, and that's a definitive risk. But with negative reinforcement, you can land yourself in a lot of dangerous situations, too. If food aggression around treats is the biggest risk you run in the poor application of positive reinforcement, you're doing pretty well because there's a lot more grave risks we see occurring on a regular basis at horse shows and in training programs that are solely pressure and release. Risk will always apply with horses, but there's certain things you can do to mitigate the risk. And one of those things is making sure that we're humbling ourselves with education and not getting so egotistical that we 
hide behind the mask of superiority while we insult a training method that shows a lot more validity and efficacy across all species than the one that is being defended. And I say this personally because I used to do those same things where I would criticize positive reinforcement and say really ignorant things because I didn't understand it. And I didn't have the desire to look into it more because I felt threatened by it. And that was wrong to do. So I encourage anyone who has ever felt this way to really think about where that underlying behavior is coming from and why you are triggered by people who are simply existing training their own horses with positive reinforcement. Because honestly, the most crazy thing I've noticed is that these comments with these misconceptions and these condescending comments about like trainers being less good at their jobs if they need to use treats for work and so on and so forth. I get them far more often on videos where I don't say anything to criticize any other method. It is simply just me working with my horses. And people watching that felt so attacked by the content they witnessed that they felt the need to drag and insult my training in a way that they cannot even handle when I cite scholarly sources on a generalized post that is not directed at them or their training. And they want to freely be able to do that to people like myself without getting held accountable for their behavior. Meanwhile, they cannot even take studies that conflict with their belief being shared without flying off the handle and getting condescending and defensive. The elephant in the room here is human ego and the desire to protect one's personal views and do what feels most comfortable for you. And believe me, I have been there and I understand it, but you're not doing yourself a service in remaining ignorant to the things you criticize. It's like a spur of the moment reaction and you're letting yourself be reactionary and react emotionally to things instead of learning about what you criticize and coming from a place where you have actually like studied what you don't like about positive reinforcement and are making an educated decision based off of that. None of these misconceptions are educated. They come from a place that lacks education and lacks a massive understanding of learning theory and how different methods are applied and how their use of pressure and release actually works in terms of how the horses learn from it. And that is doing yourself an immense disservice to let yourself get away with hating something simply because you don't understand it especially something harmless that is linked to so many positive mental and physical health benefits in all sorts of species. So that's my TED talk for the day. I'm sure there's going to be more misconceptions that I think of, but like these are just recent ones that I saw within like the last 24 hours on the video that I posted of me teaching Banksy to stand up by the mounting block at Liberty using positive reinforcement. The amount of people who felt the need to describe how they start horses and why it's better and like go like, I don't need treats, was absurd. I said nothing about the use of pressure release in that video. And I very clearly stated at the end of the video that my goal is to have my first ride on him tackless. Every single person who criticized me in the comments there, I can almost guarantee you, they're not starting their horses tackless, which means we have different goals. 
if I gave him no incentive to want to participate in training and then I just decided to climb on his back one day, I would probably get my shit rocked. I don't want to do that. I want it to be a positive experience for the both of us. And it's a darn shame that people are so triggered by new information that makes them uncomfortable that they're willing to go and make condescending, nasty comments like that that degrade someone's entire practice as a trainer off of one 60-second video in which their horse is being well-behaved and performing the behaviors being asked near perfectly. And people say that I'm judgmental and that I'm really stuck in my views and, like, whatever. Like, yes, I'm very passionate about what I do and I hold a lot of strong views. But if you can disprove them with research that has comparable, mer comparable merit to the research that has led me to having these views, I am open to being wrong. On the flip side, these people are so uncomfortable by the way I exist in this world with horses that they degrade my entire training practice without looking at, like, the industries I've worked in, the types of horses I've worked on, and the differences that I've made in horses. It's, it's just absolute absurdity. <laughs> um, and I don't, like, let the comments get to me from the standpoint of, like, it doesn't impact my self-worth. It just makes me feel very exasperated because seeing people freely and, like, willfully engage in such ignorance and then attack other people in ways that they absolutely cannot handle themselves because they feel attacked by me training my horse with treats. Even when I say nothing about their own training, they feel attacked enough by that that they need to defend themselves in the comments and then they think that they shouldn't be held accountable for when they drag people's training for no reason, with absolutely no scientific merit behind their claims, and no merit in terms of, like, what they're saying about the person being criticized. Almost every criticism I've received on my page from people who are anti-positive reinforcement stems from them making assumptions about the type of trainer I am, assumptions about my experience and the types of horses that I work on, without ever looking at my stuff because I have a platform with like hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands at this point of videos showing my work and depicting it over the course of years. So there's really no reason for someone to come on here and be like, oh, I bet she's never started a horse before, lol, or like, oh, let's see you do that with a racehorse or like weird comments like that, that like I have already done those things when they can go and check on my very pages and see the truth behind it. it. It exemplifies an attitude where their desire is really just to criticize me and take out their own insecurities on me and project their feelings onto me and mistreat me for existing in a way that they are not comfortable with doing yet and instead of trying to get to the bottom of why certain things trigger them and why they feel the way they do, they lash out at others. Because here's the thing. What I can say about myself, even if people don't always like or agree with what I post, when I criticize other people's training methods, it's coming from a place of concern for the horse. It's coming from a place of concern for the well-being of the horse, and it's coming from a place of Valid, like scientific validity where there's been research and enough of it to make it a valid concern of mine to have. 
where people are coming from when they openly condemn positive reinforcement using completely untrue statements is seeking to protect themselves. There is a huge difference, and I will never allow myself to be under the same umbrella as those types of people, because even if I miss the mark and science ends up proving me wrong and I later change my opinions and have to be like, oh, I screwed up and I had these beliefs that were stupid and untrue, and I'm sorry for what I said, whatever, I'll do that when the time comes that the science points a different direction. I've already done that because I've changed my training to where I have now, and I've acknowledged the dumb things I said out of ignorance when I was triggered. I'm open to doing that, but my intent is to try to better the lives of horses and try to modernize the industry using information that has been factually proven enough times to hold with some merit and consider in any changes we make to the horse world. Criticisms of positive reinforcement, especially on posts that shouldn't really trigger people because it's just people training in their own way with no clear behavioral signs or issues from the horse that would draw concern. That's protecting their own ego at the expense of someone else's feelings in a lot of cases. And I'm lucky that I've been online long enough and had people say like the most horrible shit to me that I finally got to the point where I can shrug it off more or less most of the time. But a lot of people aren't like that, and a lot of the people who are the loudest in saying these unkind things, they're often successful in silencing some people from the internet if they take, if they say things to smaller creators who don't have as many supporters to help defend them, or who haven't had as much year, had as many years experience in the industry to really feel comfortable in their belief system and stand by it even when other people condemn it. And that's really sad because they're weaponizing, they're weaponizing like words with the purpose of protecting themselves and silencing other people who probably have good things to say. So anyways, <clears throat> those are common misconceptions that are said about positive reinforcement and my thoughts on them. Um, I know the people who probably need to listen to this podcast the most never will. Uh, but if you find someone who needs to hear this, why don't you try sending them the podcast and just seeing if they'll listen? Because this will take like an hour, I don't know, this is a long one, an hour and a half of their time and they can space it out of the, over the course of days if they want. Um, but if it's truly not about protecting themselves, they should be open to hearing more information and looking at different studies and questioning the motive behind reactionary behavior like that because when I get reactionary generally speaking my motive is exasperation and frustration about the state of the horse world and how many horses are in high amounts of stress and suffering and I think that's a relevant thing to get exasperated about I think that people getting mad at people who want to soften training methods and be more considerate of animals is a weird thing to get mad about but Anyways, thank you for listening to this um, podcast. If you like hearing my ramblings, I recommend checking out like my Facebook page where I do a lot of shorter text posts 
Um, and also my book, like I mentioned at the beginning, The Other Side of Horsemanship, you can check it out on milestoneequestrian.ca. Um, there's a link in the main navigation that you can find where to buy it and read a little bit about it before. Um, and yeah, if you want to see how I train and get more training tutorials of how to start applying science-based techniques to your training repertoire, I have a Patreon and you can get training help by way of tutorials for as little as $5 a month um, for the tier that has access to all of them. And you can subscribe for more than that if you want like direct training help with like video critiques or like online consults and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I, I recommend checking that out and I'll just tell you some of the, um, the tutorials and discussions that are already live. So I have the Introducing the Mounting Block talk through, which is new with the one with Banksy, a three-part intro to rewards-based methods, part one, considerations before you start, part two, teaching head away slash food manners, part three, target training, working with unhandled horses, reintroducing the saddle tutorial, self-riding tutorial, introducing the re reverse round pen, addressing herd boundedness in horses, starting a stallion with positive reinforcement, horse personalities, teaching a horse to lunge, trailer loading tutorial, self-haltering tutorial, desensitization to a flag, desensitizing a nervous horse to a whip, hard to catch horses, teaching the ear target, and so on. There's lots. Um, so yeah, you can check that out on patreon.com slash s-d-e-q-u-u-s, patreon.com slash s-d-equus. And thank you for listening to this. I hope this had some good insights that you enjoyed. And yeah, those are the misconceptions that I find the most frustrating to hear because they're the ones I hear the most and that I thought of first because they're ones that I see all the time. Um, yeah, it, it is a wild place to be when I get more hate on videos of me just training my horses and doing things that most other people cannot do with theirs um, than I do on posts where I'm actually criticizing modern training methods. It's wild to me. And that wasn't meant to be cocky and me saying they cannot do that with their own horses because things like riding Milo bridleless in the middle of an open beach is something that's pretty unusual that a lot of people don't do and that I can't even do on most horses. So that's what I'm getting at there. I'm not trying to be like a shithead. Anyways, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. As always, like feel free to give me any suggestions for future podcasts and let me know what you think. Thank you everyone. Have a great day.